0: Welcome to the Born and Raised Audio Experience Presented by Onyx All
1: right
2: Yep, go on
1: is on right on all right guys welcome back to the uh born and raised audio experience sponsored by onyx uh, i'm excited to reconnect with some friends here that uh haven't had a chance to talk with in a long time i'm uh i'm in in my house and i'm talking with noah montgomery uh tanner whitley and larry schrock so tanner and larry they uh they have a podcast of their own called the blind chatter podcast and uh yeah tanner what? uh What's going on, man? What's new?
3: Not a whole lot, man. Thanks for having me. Um, no, I mean, I'm just kind of pushing through the off-season, trying to trying to keep my head on my shoulders, waiting on bird season to come around. haven't had a chance to shoot my bow yet, so I don't even know if bow hunting is going to be a real option for me uh, come September, having this new house and taking on a little more responsibility at work. So we'll see what happens.
1: I'm just going to throw it out there, and if you haven't shot your bow yet, I'm going to say those seasons probably not going to happen.
3: I have second season for deer. So that's always an option, but uh, it's not, not looking good for the home team on this one this year.
1: I know uh, listening to your guys podcast that Larry was starting to reload ammunition for his rifle back in January. So I know, <laughs> I know Larry is ready.
3: <laughs> Larry's always ready for a new adventure. So that's, that's the beautiful thing about the blind chatter podcast is, uh, you know, we got a lot of sticks in the fire. He's trying to reload shotgun shells. And I'm still trying to learn my ABCs. So, and lots, Noah, of, lots of work in progress.
1: Noah's tuning his bow nonstop, 24 365. <laughs> He's the only guy was, in February tuning his
2: bow. <laughs> but with that said, I grab, you know, handfuls of Winchester Super X's that are rusty out of a Ziploc bag during, during duck season. So, <laughs> it goes both ways.
1: By that last couple of weeks, we all have that one Ziploc bag that's just kind of a <laughs> random random grab bag, don't we?
3: I'm, I'm dipping into my water swat, my kill shot shells, and those are starting to get flung at flying birds by the end of the year.
1: So, Larry, you've uh, you've probably been pretty busy. You've got a duck property that you're always always seem to be working on and getting dialed in for the for the duck season.
0: Yeah, we. I th- I think I I think right now we're at maybe twelve to fifteen inch corn, um, and just keeping the juice going to it and the other two leases that i have are resting ponds so that'll just be a matter of mowing but um the ponds looking good and i'm i'm ready to go
1: nice yeah This this uh this last year's you know i call it the the long winter the eight month winter right out spring it sure it sure didn't help any of the corn farmers that's
0: for sure No, it it, it didn't. Uh, I think a lot of the corn that I'm seeing down here in the lower valley right now is, uh, I you know, at at least for going into this season is looking pretty good. I think it'll get harvested off pretty soon, and I think it might lead to some good September shooting.
1: Nice, nice. So, Tanner, I was thinking back to when when exactly did you and I actually first meet? Because I know it was a summer lake.
3: I want to say it's like Summer Lake 2000, and had it been between 05 and 07. I uh, want to say you were with Casey, Brian, Austin, Robert, Stacy, Corey Miller. Did, Corey, did you help with Jeb?
1: uh he was in the same camp but we didn't actually hunt together but yeah that was that same we all had that same camp there for years
3: so. yep yep i want to say it was like oh five oh seven somewhere around then i know you guys at the end of the end of the weekend. you guys had quite the uh quite the hall quite the the pile picture if i remember right you guys stretched it out from about the summer lake wildlife area post about two camps back all greenheads. <laughs>
1: I, I I do remember we had some good times back then. It's just been so long since I've been back there. Now I'm I'm definitely uh, definitely jonesing to get back there for sure. So I'm telling you what, last line.
2: year you were there, Eric.
1: Gosh, I was trying to think about that. It's it's got to be around ten, twelve years ago. So it's been a long time. It basically, when I started guiding heavy, like full time. I, I wasn't able to do any fun hunting anymore. And so I kinda had to <laughs> kinda had to just forego all those fun, you know, annual trips. And uh and now that things have changed a little bit and I'm not spending as much time guiding myself, it's uh it's yeah, I'm looking forward to it big time.
0: I think the last time I was there was like ninety three or ninety four. Wow. Oh
1: nice.
3: Yeah. It, it's the same beat. It, just a different drummer yeah nothing's changed
0: it, yeah it, it was uh it was, it was a blast in um uh, but that that was a long time ago that's definitely one of those common grounds
1: that everyone from at least oregon if not the northwest you know you start asking around guys at waterfowl hunt a lot and everyone's either been to heard of or know someone that hunts summer lake for the opener or at least that that early part of the season and all the uh all the all the tradition that, that surrounds it so it's a pretty yeah. cool place.
2: Yep. it's no secret but that's kind of that's kind of what makes it fun in my opinion yeah yeah
1: absolutely yeah absolutely yep. so the the blind shot i was gonna ask you guys when when you guys got that started you guys just were you guys on a duck hunt and decided you know what i think we should start a, a podcast
3: you know i was trying to remember what it was that made me want to start it um I think for me, it was, I started listening to the Dr. Duck podcast and there was another one, the HP Outdoors Waterfowl podcast. And it was really nice to listen to that because it gives you the inside look at how people in different areas hunt. But there wasn't anybody that was talking about the Pacific Northwest and we're such a different demon for waterfowl because we've got such a wide array of, I mean, we've got seven subspecies of Canada geese. There's not a lot of places in the continental U S that have seven subspecies of Canada geese. You go shoot mallards, green wing, widgeon, uh, pintail, depending on where you're at, gadwall, you get into diver ducks of the same. I mean, there's been some hunts where we've got into like eight or nine different species of ducks. Um, and there wasn't anybody that was really touching on it. And so for me it was more or less trying to get it out there and not necessarily put the Pacific Northwest on the map because that's never been my intent and I don't really want to put it on the map but I want it to be out there so people can understand that like there is more to waterfowl than hunting the timber and hunting the flats of Kansas and that the Pacific Northwest you've got kind of everything here you know you've got sea ducks you've got the valley you can hunt uh flooded fields you can hunt dry fields on the east side you go shoot big canadas over deep east oregon you can shoot little birds in the valley i mean it was just kind of one of those things where i wanted to do it and i just bit the bullet and i bought the stuff to do it and you know here we are
1: well it's definitely been a lot of fun watching it watching it grow and watching you guys uh succeed and, and seeing some of the different guests that you guys bring onto the onto the show there and you're right i mean uh, i know no one i've had this discussion a lot because we, we spend a lot of time on the road together hunting together and uh, you have to be a very, very diverse, or you have the option of being a very diverse waterfowler living in the Northwest. Because like you mentioned, um, you can go from hunting you know, sheet water to flooded crops to flooded timber to a big river system to the lower Columbia to the coast to divers. To, I mean, you could have three or four boats and eight different decoy spreads. So,
0: Yeah. yeah. I, that's what makes us unique. Um, I also think that's what makes us special right? Is that diversity of what we have the opportunity to chase every weekend?
2: No, it's like, like Eric mentioned, we talk about it a lot. And that's one of my goals as a, as a waterfowler or a sportsman in general is to be good at everything, you know, probably never be great at any of it, but you know, it, it's cool how much variety we have. Cause it, it's you're you're almost in something different every time. If you're, if you're a freelance guy or just, or just hopping yeah. all around the state or even within the Valley we all live in, there's so much variety. It's amazing. I can go up, you know, 25 miles North to you guys. And in some ways it can be completely different what the birds are doing. You know, on to the outside, it looks the same.
3: Yeah, that's the thing about being a valley hunter. Is like you know the saying, uh, "Jack of all trades, master of none," but often better than master of one. That's a perfect example of like what hunting the Willamette Valley is. Is like you need to be the ma- like you need to be the jack of all trades. You need to be able to to change it up. You know, like Eric saying, you know, you go hunt a cornfield for geese, turn around the next day on your way home, you know, you find a flooded field full of ducks. You like you need to be able to make that change. And be able to adapt to adversity, and take it, and grow with it, and go with it, and then succeed. It's expensive. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I know waterfowl is expensive, yeah. but when you could be hunting like three different species, three ways, in three days, it gets it gets expensive. Yeah,
1: yeah. I've I've been pretty fortunate to travel a lot and hunt in a lot of different flyways and areas. And one thing that I always hear. Especially in areas where it doesn't rain a lot, is I, don't, I you know I, I won't even hunt in the rain. I can't stand hunting in the rain. Yeah. And I sit there and I look at them and I'm like, man, if we didn't hunt in the rain, or if we, you know, a lot of guys they hunt, hunt, they they hate hunting like high gray, overcast days. I'm like, you you just described our entire season. You know, right. a, a, a high of fifty with rain, a low of thirty eight and fog in the morning. I mean, it's like the worst conditions you could have for killing waterfowl.
3: That's a good point. Yeah, we got to learn to live with it though. You know, it's one of those things where you know your your guys is what I like to call you know your decoy dancer, my my flitty. You know that thing is my saving grace a lot of the times.
1: They they, they can definitely they can definitely help you out day in day out. That's for sure. There's yeah, no, no doubt. One of my favorite memories last year, Noah just just talking about it kind of <laughs> brought brought to my, my my attention. We went to the coast to go hunt uh, scoters, and. Oh, yeah. And it was one of those hunts that, from the beginning to end, it, like if it could go wrong, it basically did. But we had an absolute blast, and no, that was your first time hunting sea ducks, right?
2: Yeah, and yeah, like you said, everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. It was like we had this snowstorm of a hundred years. Like the Coast Range had like a foot of snow on it, which the Coast Range, if you can't put that together, it's right by the coast, so elevation's not too high. Uh, you know, it took us like. Four and a half hours to do a two hour drive, and we're hunting the outgoing tide. And it was just, but it was still so fun. And I, and I feel like you learned so much on those trips.
1: Well, the the smile on your face when you got your first scooter, Drake, I mean, that was like, that was worth it all. But yeah, like, like Noah yeah. mentioned, we had, we lost decoys, we lost anchors, we lost lines, we almost lost a motor. I mean, it was one of those trips where you're like, we should probably just go put this back on the trailer and just, you know, count our blessings.
3: Yeah, did you guys? Uh, did you guys hunt out of a full boat, or did you hunt out of a layout boat?
1: Uh, I had my my TDB there, my my duck boat, yeah. and uh, we it was myself and Noah and Jack Lyles, and we had no shortage of laughs, but it was also just a comedy of errors. I mean, every time we l- we look up, we're like, all right. That's wrong. This is wrong. We're floating away. The decoys are floating away. I mean, it was, yeah, it was a good yeah. time, though. It
3: was a good yeah, time. we did that. We did a one year and 100 out of a, I had a little beaver tail final attack and I was like super high strung on this thing. And I'm like, this thing's awesome, blah, blah, blah. Guy at work goes, well, let's go hunt scoters out of it. And I go, yeah, I, I mean, it's good for like sheet water and like some, you know, deep fields, but like, I don't know about, you know, doing that. So we hauled it out there and we had it out. We set our long lines and, and, The first group of scoters we had come in, I don't even think they saw me, you know, they were flying at me and I'm sitting there and you know, you kind of rock with the waves when you're in one of those little boats and I pull up and it was like, they just didn't see me. They just kept coming at me. And I'm like, to the point where it's like 15 yards, 10 yards. And I'm like, I really don't think that this is like, I don't think I'm going to get this shot, kept coming. And I was finally just shot. And like, they just don't see you, you know, and you get down in the water with them and I mean, you, you know, you shot your first scoter Drake and you get one of those in the boat and you're kind of looking at it and it's like, this is kind of a, this is a cool bird, you know, those things are tough too. like, Oh, they
2: are like on a, on a scale. I like to think of like pheasants as the lowest on a tough to kill bird scale. And like scoters are probably level 10.
3: Yeah. They definitely take (laughs) a follow-up shot. I I learned quickly that, you know, once they hit the water, you got to be on them. Put another one in them so they don't dive because the first couple of times, you know, I had a group come in and I'm, you know, first shot, dump one, second shot, dump one. And I'm like, all right, cool. And then I look down and I'm like, Where'd they go? And then one pop up and you know, it's just And
2: that was part of our struggles. We're hunting this outgoing tide, you know, we'd shoot a couple. You know, don't like to hunt dogs in the bay. And so, you know, we pull off anchor to go get them. And then we're having such a hard time getting anchors to stick and getting back in it. So it'd be like, you know, it felt like 30, 45 minutes before we get the boat in place again, shoot one more, then go do it all over again.
1: You almost had to pull the trigger because you knew the amount of work that was going to ensue after you <laughs> killed one. So, <laughs> yeah, and they're, they're also not not easy targets to hit. I mean, first time I, I took Cody out a few years back, and uh, Cody was laughing; he was all smiles. But he went through a box of shells. It was a really good day, and I think he had two dead. <laughs> it was pretty funny, but yeah. Well, I had a question for you because I've been I, paying attention to your guys' podcast. Um, you guys are probably pretty well versed in what's going on in the Puget Sound with regards to Blue Ducks, Harlequin. Fill, fill me in on kind of what you guys have found out because you've had some good some good guests and I'm sure you've got both sides of the story or at least a couple sides of the story now. What, what exactly is going on with the Harlequin population and why, why did Washington decide to close it down?
3: From what I understand, um, the wintering number of Blue Ducks in Washington has dropped and there's not really a good way to get a count on them. Um, for people that don't know, Harlequin ducks are these little ducks and they sit on the rock bluffs and uh, the sound and, and out like uh, on the shores of the ocean. And they do an aerial survey with them. Well, aerial surveys are kind of the way to go for for waterfowl because you can take an aerial photo you know, over a flat and you can see the backs of the ducks. You can get kind of a count that way. But these ducks, they blend into the rocks so well, you can't get a good count. That and then this whole, you know, there's this big push for for the Hunt 41 to shoot all 41 species of um, waterfowl in the continental US. A lot of guys are coming from, from far away to shoot these ducks. And there's an issue with people turning in their harvest cards. So like what the permit zone used to be here in Oregon, used to get, uh, initially you'd get a, a paper tag, And you go shoot your geese, take it into the check station, they check it, then they give you a a card, and that's your goose card. And every time you go shoot birds, geese, you got to fill that card out, take it into a check station, they check it, you get a new one. While with sea ducks, it was kind of the same idea where you're granted um, a certain number of sea ducks per year, I believe, and people weren't turning those cards in. So there wasn't really a true harvest number that they could gather a relative number from because that number is so skewed. So there's a lot of kind of mis- misinformation about how many birds there actually are. And then the other thing that goes into it is they migrate somewhat north and south, but most of the time they migrate east to west. So they will go from the the bays and the shores of the ocean, and they'll migrate up into the like high elevation rivers and streams like up Yellowstone, uh, up in the Cascades, and that's where they will have their nests and raise their clutches at. Well, you can't really get a good count on birds up that high because you, you're not going to fly a plane over and be able to snap shots of them and get you know, good, good photos of them. So there's a lot of issues with kind of how the, the bird count needs to be done and there's a lot of conflicting views. You know, we talked to, uh, his name is Brett Weingarten. He's a guide at uh, Columbia Coast Outfitters. Um, you know, they offered their bo- boats um, to the biologists to do their counts on. Um, but he was saying that they didn't want to do that. Um, there's just a lot of stuff that goes into it. So the main reason is is, is they don't have a good way to collect a relative number for these birds for wintering grounds because of the conditions, you can't fly a plane over them. You know, say three hundred feet off the ground and get pictures good enough to tell how many birds there really are. Now, the, this the, uh,
1: this reminds me a lot of a certain certain uh, subspecies of Canada goose that uh, resides in our valley. And I, I'll go ahead and say it, but they're
2: not counting them properly. So, no, there's yeah. only two hundred thousand every year, man. Yeah, exactly. Only. only.
3: <laughs> Yeah. And no, now I- we're getting and now we're getting the brood into that too, because now our goose season's gone down from four to three, which at the end of the day is good for me because for some reason, if you look at my social media on the blind chatter, I can only shoot three Canada geese every day I go out. I cannot get a fourth. I don't know what it is about me, but as soon as I get three, I might as well pick up my decoys and head back because I'm never gonna get that fourth one.
1: I'll speak for yourself. So I
3: am speaking for myself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, it, it's actually very interesting because I'm glad I'm glad you uh, filled us in on that because I didn't realize that that's what was going on. But we're having the same issues with our duskies and our cacklers. You know, these birds. I've I've been saying it for a lot of years. I've sat in different council meetings, Pacific Flyway Council meetings, dusky uh, task force meetings, and what's happened is they've shifted their nesting grounds. But they're counting in the same areas, so it's like it's, it's like if you're trying to find elk and wolves have, and wolves have moved into an area. They're not going to be in that same area. So if you're counting that 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 herd, all of a sudden you're saying, well, they're gone. There, there's none left, and we're getting skewed data. We're getting bad data, and it's not to the fault of the biologists. I think their hands are tied as well. There's a lot of red tape surrounding this this situation. A lot of money being exchanged, but we're, we're at the end of the day, we're the ones going to going to you know basically have have the sacrifice.
2: It's one of those hard deals because on one hand, you don't want to see, um, something go away to where your kids are never going to have the opportunity to do it for two reasons, you know, because they're extinct or because loss of opportunity. And so, you know, we want to make the correct moves to where, uh, there's enough numbers of these very cool birds and unique birds for our lifetime and lifetimes beyond us. Uh, but you also want to make sure the science is, is right, you know? So, yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: The only time I've actually seen a Harlequin duck, it was on the Mackenzie river of all yep. places. Yep. I was, I was up Mackenzie, and th- there they were in, in the river. And I'm like, what in the world are they doing up here? And it was summertime. And just like you said, yeah. they must've been raising their, their broods up there.
2: So that was the only place. I, and that's another thing, like as far you, you mentioned it, uh, Tanner, as far as uh, we measure most species, as far as abundance in their nesting grounds and Harlequins, you know, uh, obviously, like you said, they nest in mountain streams, you know, from anywhere from uh, the Coast Range and Cascades to Yellowstone. And if you don't know geology all that well, that's a big that's a big area <laughs> with a lot of mountain streams, you know, and a lot yeah. of times there's two decks on a stream. That's 30 miles. and I mean, there's no there's no easy way to 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 uh, forecast how many there are.
3: Yeah. And the other thing that goes into it, too, is, um, you know, Mother Nature. Look at what happened to Yellowstone this year. Look at the flood that went through there. I mean, yeah. that, that definitely is going to play a role. I mean, when you think about it, you know, you say these birds have a clutch of, you know, say they have six, say four make it. You know, once they're ready to go, they hop into that water running like that. They're not making it out of it. No way. It's just, no. it's, it's another thing that, and, and that's why you can't chalk it up to guides. You can't chalk it up to mismanagement. You can't chalk it up to really anything because these birds are like, they're not like any other bird they're totally different. They're wild. And it's important to to try to conserve this bird. Like you said, you know, for future generations too. like, I've never shot one. I've also never gone out and targeted them. But that being said, like if I had a flock of them come in in Oregon, like I I wouldn't be out there, you know, shooting, going three for three on them or, you know, it's just kind of one of those things where it's like, you know, it's, it's a tough situation. It's a tough call right now
1: you brought up uh, hunt 41. It's, it's interesting when that first started kind of, you know, becoming popular, my phone was ringing off the hook with bird collectors from all across the East coast. Want to come and kill cacklers and duskies. And I was like, Hey, we can't shoot, we can't shoot duskies guys. It's just, this, that's a no fly zone, but cacklers, um, I did, we did a lot of hunts for them for bird collectors. and it's actually, I, I enjoyed it because the stories that these waterfowlers had, I mean, they've traveled all over the globe, you know, chasing these birds and, um, They've yeah, spent a lot of money to, to kill some of these these rare ones. and It was it was, it was pretty fun to hear their stories.
0: Eric, Eric, early early in the days, did you have very many people that were looking to specifically just snipe out a Dusky? I did,
1: um, especially when it was still, quote-unquote, legal. And, and if you're listening to this you, right. and you're not affluent with our permit zone… Um, right. No gray area yeah the permit zone you used to be allowed to shoot one and then you just, and then you just lost your privileges for the rest of the year there was no ticket issued um, there was no you know basically no no repercussions especially towards the end of the season so you'd hear of guys that would shoot duskies in the third period um, that were bird collectors or wanted to kill one and yeah Larry I, I got a lot of calls a lot of these third period hey I live in you know Tennessee North Carolina Georgia wherever I want to come out and shoot a dusky and I was like, absolutely not, because a, I don't want to shut down a zone, and b, I don't want to get that reputation. So,
0: it it was a long time ago. I I would probably say early, early 2000s, Um, and you know, we had that we had to call into Mm -hmm. and and uh, to find out if the season was open, and it was always like Savvy Island was overshooting. And I don't know if it was true or not, but there was a number of people down here that were tell were telling me you it was kind of the rumor around that like animal animal uh, rights individuals were harvesting duskies to close the season.
1: I, I had heard those 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 uh, kind of rumors, accusations. As well right. I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past them one bit, but what, what I was I can confirm is when the Savion public area used to still have um, goose hunting. That would almost always shut down the first day because yeah. everyone would go out there and just shoot a dusky. So, really, yeah, it was, it was pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, yep.
0: Crazy times.
1: But now we don't have to worry about that. Now you just get a big fat ticket and lose your license. So, so no one does. Yeah. No one does it.
3: <laughs> yeah. Hey, while we're while we're on the topic of duskies, have you seen any sort of a a crossbreed between a dusky and say a, a western or a lesser?
1: western is for sure um so it's actually called a wusky um yep. there's a lot of that occurring in not so much northwest oregon as much as southwest washington for whatever reason um and i've actually i've, I've helped out a couple times on the collaring and banding projects and it's a pretty wild experience because these birds are in the molt so they can't fly and we set these huge traps with the nets it looks like a baseball field and it, they take a helicopter and a bunch of jet boats and push them off the sandbars into the water and then push them up onto a, a sandbar where you have this trap set. And, I mean, on, on a good trap, you're getting 150 to 200 birds. And it it is wild. It is very wild. So Now, the other ones um, that you're mentioning, the lessers. So there's a colony of birds in Potter, Wasilla, Alaska, um, that when I was living in Monmouth there, going to Western, they resided right there at Basket Slough. And we had all sorts of problems with them. Now, they were also a bunch of birds that were collared, so we had fun targeting those, but there was also a lot of birds that weren't and you would get your card punched. So you had to be super, super careful or know that you were shooting a marked bird, which yeah. we're we're getting into some 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 uh murky waters here.
3: Right. <laughs> I love it. Right. Keep going. Keep going. Well, I just was asking because last year um I was out hunting and, and uh, you know, I, I like to target the big birds. I try to shoot lessers and, and westerns you know i'll shoot cacklers too but when i got big birds on a feet i'll try to shoot them and um i had a group come in and i just chalked them up to duskies and i let them land but there was a lot of duskies that were in that group that looked a lot different than all the other ones same size different color variations um you know and i talked to one of our uh, biologist buddies about it and he's telling me up and down that there's no you know you're not seeing any of the crossbreeds and i've got a picture of one that's banded that I would put a paycheck on that is probably one of those Wesky crossbreeds. Mm-hmm. But I just wasn't sure if you guys are still seeing them up there or not, because I saw some last year that, you know, I just, I, I chalked them up to Duskies. And after looking at them through my camera and all that, I'm really thinking that they they weren't.
1: No, they're, they're definitely around. And uh, they, if you get into the, in the right pocket, there's a lot of them, a lot yeah. of them. Yep. Gosh this this conversation took a took a turn. We're <laughs> we're talking we're talking deep northwest permit zone stuff yeah. right now. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I had a question. I had a question. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh,
2: no. No. You're good. You're good.
1: I had a question for you guys. And I always ask this question when I'm when I'm talking waterfall hunting with people. What was what was your first duck hunt or goose hunt like? Like what what's what's that memory to you guys? Because I think a lot of people have different stories. I know mine's far far different than a lot of people but like larry what was your first waterfowl experience like
0: my first uh waterfowl experience was uh just just jump shoot um there's a little pond or, or an old slough off of the willamette probably a half mile away and went down there with the 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 pup that i grew up with and had my old uh winchester model 12 And walked down there and was walking the bank and jumped up a pair of mallards and busted one of them and dog went out and got it. And that was the first experience. That was obviously not over decoys or anything, but that was that was the first one that said, Okay, now if I learn how to call, if I if I learn how to put out decoys, if I learn how to do more the opportunity that i can have per hour will increase if i put more effort into it but that was that was the that was the first one
1: is that that a spot that you can still go and visit to this day yes yep yeah do you you ever do you ever find yourself going back there just for the the nostalgia of it
0: absolutely it's hard to me that's no
1: it's 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 hallowed ground you know i'm I'm the same way and i'm sure if we ask noah and tanner i'm I'm curious what their first experiences were like i can just tell by listening your voice i mean it's those those first experiences they mean a lot to us and even though it wasn't like for me my first experience was awful except for i saw a lot of ducks but we didn't kill one didn't even get one come close but i can tell you to that day you know we slept in the truck in line. went up there with my dad. It was the worst blind in the whole area. I mean, we walked, you know, two and a half miles in the mud in the wrong direction. But I could tell you every little piece about it. And um, to this day, we'll still go out there and just go for a walk. Yep. Yep. What about you, Tanner? I,
3: well, so the first time I ever went out in the marsh uh, was with my dad and Stacy and uh, Kyle Knudsen, if you know Kyle. Oh, yeah. We, uh, we didn't have a boat or anything growing up, but we had E.E. Uh, e. Wilson. Good old E Wilson out there in a dare. We call that dirty double E. Oh yeah, that's yep, that's the going name for it. But yeah, we got up one morning and uh, we went out there, and I was probably seven or eight. wasn't old enough to hunt, but I wanted to go, so put my hip waders on and started walking out. And I'm pretty sure I walked over the hip waders. I filled my boots with water. Uh, dad picked me up, put me on his shoulders, carried me out to the blind. And we sat out there for hours and i think we shot like two or three birds um that was my real first experience in the blind but first time hunting we went down to uh fern ridge my dad and i and we just walked the dike like your typical you know walk the dike shoot the birds that come over whatever and um i didn't shoot any birds that time but that was seeing all those birds and being out there in that environment was one of those kind of it's like a still frame in my mind like i remember walking through the gate walking down the dike with the cattails coming up and there's a tree on the left side like i remember like it was yesterday um just kind of one of those things that is always going to be there for me the first duck i shot was a merganser on the river with stacy he told me it was a mallard and i shot it and he just kept laughing at me went and picked it up and it was like a hooded merganser hen and i was like that's a great bird is this good and he goes yeah great job bud And I'm like, awesome. You know, I took it home and showed showed my aunt and my mom, and they were like, that's great, you know? And I'm like, why is nobody excited about this, you know? Come to find out, I just, you know, shot a hood merganser. But you grow from it, you know? But that was my first real experience.
1: I think it would be it'd be really cool and special to put a book together. That's all self self-told stories of everyone's first, like waterfowl hunts and experiences it just has some, more or less something to pass on to the generations, because I guarantee you just the way we're all talking about these, these hunts and these experiences, the, the amount and the level of detail that would be covered in these stories is like second to none, because I can tell you I, there's, there's, There's so many, you know, limit hunts that I can't even remember who was there, but I can tell you about all sorts of hunts where we killed two ducks, but it was because the people and the, the way the hunt, you know, occurred, I can tell you exactly what happened. So Larry, Larry, do you still have that model 12?
0: I I really hope you do. I do. Yes. Nice. That's awesome. Now, you know, I, I don't, I don't know when the law passed to go from lead to steel, but it was this the old lead gun, and I was out there burning steel through it. Um You know, no care. My dad bought it for me. I I, I think I was probably eleven, maybe twelve years old, and yeah, I, I still I still have it. It's a it's a five digit. Wow, that's that's awesome, man.
1: Noah, what what, what was your first waterfowl experience?
2: Um. I guess the first time I ever went, I didn't grow up in a waterfowl hunting family or anything like that. So I've had a lot of mentors along the way. Uh, I had a friend in elementary and middle school and and past that, but um, he asked me, I I grew up big game hunting. That's what we did. We elk and deer hunted. Um, He asked me if I wanted to go duck hunting with them on a Sunday morning. So we went out to a reservoir in the Cascades and it was, I mean, I, I think we saw like three or four birds flying um, you know, we sat for two hours and it was just terrible. Um, it's just like a big empty reservoir. So we're walking the mud flats. We ended up jump shooting and I think we killed two ducks in and in a big Canada. Uh, but after that, I just kind of like, man, I want to do that. I just got down the rabbit hole of watching videos and learning about it. And I was like, that looks a lot different than what I did, <laughs> you know? And so, um, like Tanner said, Fern Ridge, I grew up, you know, 12 minutes from fern ridge so high school and it was you know eight minutes from my high school driving time so uh where we where i kind of cut my teeth learning is fern ridge and and just going there before school um weekends and just learning how to how to even hunt you know and trying to make those two bird days get into you know 10 to 14 bird days is just kind of where i fell in love with it but i think we're you know, to take this one step further for everyone, which I think would be cool to answer is like a, a turning point memory where you're like, you know, maybe it was your first real successful hunt or whatever in, in your book, whatever successful is where, you know, you're like, man, I made it, you know, I did it. <laughs> and uh, for me, that'd be the first time I went over to Eastern Oregon with a buddy and we hunted a dry field, which I had never done, um, you know, and we shot our five man of mallards in like an hour, you know, and it was just like... Uh, I'm hooked. And that, that would be my like turning point. Kind of all pieces came together moment too. I
0: I think my turning point was probably around 16, 17 years old. I had a little, actually the same uh, farm pond that Eric, you, you've talked about, but it was uh, not what it is today. And I went down there in the morning and, you know, I didn't have any money. I had my buddy's old waders that were a size 12, but I wore a 15 and I went down there by myself with the, with my old pup and ended up shooting a limit by myself, all by myself on frozen ice. And the birds were hitting the water or hitting the ice and sliding across the pond. So After I shot a few, I broke ice and I went out there to go get them and ended up um, basically killing my waders with ice water, which was a disaster. And I went back to the house and I had my limited birds, but I was so proud, right? Like I had done it. And I got back to the house. I jumped in the shower. It was, I think, probably 10 to 15 degrees outside and... You know, you you turn it on, like warm, hot, and tingles, right? <laughs> like tingles. And, uh, anyhow, I ended up taking probably a, a cold shower by most, um, and I got out of the shower, and I was freezing cold. I went over to the, I went over to the fireplace that I had in the house, and I had a towel wrapped around my waist, and I sat down on the wood stove, and burning like six by eight diameter pads on my butt from six... <laughs> like that was the breaking point that like I think I have this kind of figured out I i ended up proving myself wrong but that would that was kind of the breaking point like my first limit like I had decoys I did the calling all this other stuff and turned into dumpster fire <laughs>
1: I love it. I love it. Yeah. So my, I will say, I, I remember it vividly as far as like a turning point hunt where I felt like, I mean, of course I had by no means had things figured out, but my waterfowling, I shot my first duck when I was 14, just about 15, January of 2000. And, that next season i was 15 What well, can drive but winter break my parents agreed i, I hunted Savion wildlife area I, I i hunted it religiously that's where i learned a waterfowl hunt and they told me winter break hey my dad would take me out in the morning he would drop me off before work i would get a blind and then hey we'll be back at five pick you up you know so if i if i, if I wanted to change spots i had to i had to take my I, I had a garden cart with my decoys, I mean all my stuff, I had a pole to to test the water so if I didn't you know going over my waders, didn't have a dog um you know those are the those are types of hunts where you learn so much, but I got into this blind, and up until then, I would shoot one or two ducks a day, and those ducks were every time first light, you know maybe a duck would come in decoy, but most of the time they'd be flying over within range, I'd like kill one or two well, that day, I shot five ducks. And you're gonna laugh. I shot three shovelers, shot a pintail, and a mallard hen. And guys, I'm telling you right now. I mean, I was king shit on Turd Mountain. Okay, you were proud. You were proud. <laughs> oh, I was, I was. I was as proud as a peacock. And yeah. I, I walked the mile and a half with my garden cart back to the check station just so I could beat my parents back there to show them how cool I I was and how well I'd done. And that was one of those where like I felt like I actually had called birds in, birds decoyed. I shot them myself. I did it all myself. And I was like, that was yeah, very memorable turning point you know type hunt so
3: god i love shovelers
1: oh yeah and, and you know i didn't i didn't, I didn't know shovelers weren't a, weren't a real good eating duck and so i walked back to the check station i'm like guys you wouldn't believe what i shot i shot three shovelers like this is amazing and they're looking at me like what are you talking about
3: <laughs> you gotta get those shovelers over from uh summer lake abert lake area they taste like shrimp oh yeah oh. <laughs> it's a, it's a delicacy. Oh, we had well, a hunt in the Klamath Basin last year, sauce. where we just shot. We shot. I think it was almost a perfect
2: three-man shovelers.
3: I was going for a. I was going for a limit of shovelers. I did it on accident last year. Uh, my dog and I were out, and I had a couple of shovelers come in first light. Shot both of them. They're both hands, and I was like, "Whatever." They're shovelers. Had a third hand come in, shot it, and at that point, I'm sitting there thinking, "God, I'm." I'm almost halfway there. I go, what's what's going to stop me now? I'm sitting there waiting. Here comes another hen shoveler. Boom. Four. And I'm like, I'm doing it. I'm going to shoot three more hen shovelers. I'm going to get a full full house, all hen shovelers. I'm going to make it happen. About an hour later, here comes the fifth one. Boom. Got it. I got five now. And it's like 10 o'clock, 1030. Everything's kind of starting to die down. I'm starting to get a little worried. And uh, I waited it out, waited it out. And I passed up on teal. I passed up on a group of teal that came in because I was so damn determined that I was going to shoot seven hen shovelers. I wasn't going to shoot a drake at this point. I was just going to shoot seven hens, and uh, the best I got was five, and I think that picture got posted on our podcast page because I was so proud of shooting five shovelers, and my dog absolutely loves retrieving shovelers. I think she has a taste for it now.
1: I'm not sure if you remember this, but I remember seeing that picture And that same week. Remember I you I that picture of our, like, Two handfuls of shovelers and you were yep. like dude that's what it's all about oh
3: yeah my hands were getting sweaty i was getting clammy you know i was just like rip roaring ready to go back out again i was about to call in work the next day after that and go hunt
1: you know t- talking about this stuff i'm really enjoying it and it, it brings me to something i actually was I was talking about this with noah and i think cody last year but like we're, we're pretty fortunate now you know we've been waterflying a long time have some pretty good access to stuff plenty of gear but i know our kids like it's not going to be easy street and I want my kids to learn the way I did because that's what makes you a better hunter. And that's what makes you learn what it means to, to, to hunt. Because if, yeah. if, if, if all they did was just, you know, show up and, and shoot a bunch of birds and shoot a limit and pick up, they would, they wouldn't learn what it's all about.
3: I, yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely one of those things where, you know, growing up, we never had it easy. It was always at the boat ramp, three thirty four AM got to beat, got to beat the guy named Rocky. I mean, this guy, he would be there. We could get there at 345 in the morning. His boat's already in the water. He's sitting at the hood of his truck, drinking coffee, waiting on us to get there just to let us know that he beat us. And the one morning that we said, we're going to beat him, we showed up. Nice, big, high water. Had a nice hole we are going to go to. Beat him there. Super excited. Got the boat in. Took off from the boat ramp. Smoked a deadhead. Smoked uh, two props off the propeller. So we had no power going forward he was at the boat ramp we drifted down below him ended up having to call a family friend to come toast us back to the boat ramp and uh you know i think about like making it and duck hunting that was kind of the moment where it was like this isn't like easy street like some guys have it easy they go out they've got all the private property they want and i was you know thinking you know you brought it up the you know our kids and having it easy and all that and I'm definitely going to make my kids go out with me on the river and and we're going to do it hard and we're going to learn how hunting in the public is on public waterways. And, and, you know, we're going to have fun doing that before we have fun going out and and hunting a private field where you can just walk in and, and have it ready to go for you.
2: Yeah. It's one of those things like, you want them to have the resources, but you want them to kind of learn to appreciate it. And I remember getting into it. I was just like, man, I was stuck cutting this damn lake called Fern Ridge because that's all I could get to and that's all I had access to. And like,
3: it, Do you ever it, find yourself going back there? No. I, I find myself <laughs> going back there every year. I don't know no, why. It's terrible. I haven't in the last three years but i
2: actually kind of got the itch last year actually i went on a walk one day last year there with my pup and and shot some ducks but uh, i just remember thinking man if i could just get access to any private field it's gonna be way like i just had this image in my mind if i can hunt private property it's gonna be amazing you know wow. it's gonna be like all those zinc videos and i remember i first field i got access to i don't think i'd seen a bird in two or three years but i was just dead set like it's private property it's gonna work you know yeah.
3: it's gonna be the bee's knees. Yeah. most
0: most of my uh luck came from i don't i don't i don't think good luck but in the late 70s my grandfather had a big belief in jack daniels and big belief in the irs i love that guy right right there's and, my spirit animal <laughs> and that created some problems so We ended up moving from the valley uh, over to Christmas Valley, and we had a few thousand acres over there and, you know, alfalfa and cattle and that kind of stuff. So I kind of cut my teeth over on the eastern side, and then we moved back to the valley, and my dad started selling irrigation equipment. So like linears, pivots, that kind of stuff, all through the the Willamette Valley into eastern Washington. So it was always kind of nice to write his coattails because he would go build uh, irrigation equipment on these farmers' lands, and then he would start working angles for us to start hunting them. So from, yeah, I would say Eugene up through McMinnville all the way to eastern Washington – that kind of became the angle in the i would say late 90s early 2000s as avenues for uh, ends and you know to to have those have that access to private property it isn't something that's just given to anybody and Tanner and I have talked about this a lot on the podcast on ours is that you got to earn the respect of the farmer. My my parents are, are farmers. They have roughly a thousand acres, fifteen hundred acres. Um, you got to earn that respect. You got to you got to grind. There's a grind to it, and there's a, an appreciation for what they're doing that I that I think is possibly lost throughout the entire transition of everything that we're trying to do. And if you can build relationships you, you will find opportunities to hunt private land. Yeah.
1: Do you think, uh, I I love what you're you're saying. I totally agree with you. Do you think it's also, when you said it's, it's getting almost somewhat lost, it's because a lot of people, um, generationally we'll say are looking for the biggest limit the biggest shoot they can get and then it's on to the next one they're not thinking about longevity they're not thinking about building that relationship with a with that farmer or rancher they're just hey thanks you know maybe maybe i'll talk to you next year and they're not they're not not looking to cultivate a long-term relationship where they could actually you know
0: help out if you don't build that relationship exactly right um there's a local individual. There, there's a couple local individuals uh, in the Southern Valley where uh, Tanner and I hunt. And every year I'm dropping off a couple fifths for Christmas, right? Every year. Now, part of that is that they are a family friend. Part of it is that my appreciation for every opportunity that they have provided me. This is year in and year out this is building long-term relationships where it is you know I'm calling the weekend advance saying hey um, I, I saw a bunch of birds over here are you okay with that I hunted Oh absolutely go go ahead and you might have jerk off Joe that doesn't care about the relationship that asks the following weekend and they're like no, nah, you know what we got somebody that hunted. Yeah. you build those relationships those relationships last a lifetime you got to you got to mentor them you got to, you got to manage them but you know good people are very valuable in this world that we live in, and they're not always talked about
1: agree with you, man.
2: And and the thing is too, I think people don't realize is you're you're asking to hunt on someone's uh, livelihood. You know, this is what these people do for a living. Um, so aside from relationships too, it's just making, I mean, it should look like you never even hunted it when you left, you know, and that can be pretty hard to do in the Valley and you have to be pretty diligent about, um, your footprint, but yeah, that and relationships is huge. You know, I'm sure, you know, Larry and Tanner, you guys, I know Eric, you do relationships with farmers now, or they'll, sometimes they'll call me if I haven't found the birds and tell me that they're in there, you know, and, and it can be a mutually beneficial relationship. Obviously they don't want the birds in their, in their grass fields. Um, but it, like you said, it it goes a long way.
1: You know, one, one trend that I've seen here lately that's pretty troubling to me is there's a lot of farmers that also give permission to lots of different people yeah. because they they want they want people to have an opportunity and you know if we bump into another group first things hey you guys want to hunt together yeah. why 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 compete and then you might get the pushback well no you know we want to hunt here we want to there oh, that's fine let's make sure we're respectful and let the birds work well then i've also had the experience where it's like well let's call the farmer well no yeah. it's it's five o'clock in the morning He does not want to get he or she does not want to be woken up and brought into the middle of of our our drama. And all of a sudden those farmers hunting is over.
3: Yeah. Yep. (laughs) The quickest way to lose a farmer is by having drama like that come in between the farmer and his very, very important sleep schedule. Because a lot of them don't get very good sleep.
0: Yeah. Figure you you have to figure that out. And I don't know about you, Eric, but I'm a firm believer that you need to bring the forces together in those moments, nine yeah. times. And Absolutely. Absolutely. It, and if, if I, if I run into someone that doesn't want to collaborate, it is, it, it typically doesn't end well.
2: I have some hunting partners now that I, I met them that exact way, you know, and it's like, well we kind of scout the same loops and and do all that so it's like well we might as well team up and have twice the decoys you know and stop having to play phone tag and figure out who can get a hold of the farmer first and, yep. and and yeah, it's like you said, I think as often as you can team up with those people and you can get anything out of any experience, you know. Who, well, and and, and
1: and build that network of, of like-minded waterfowlers where you can actually enjoy hunting together. Yeah. And all of a sudden now, hey, I've got a half a dozen places to hunt. You've got a half dozen. Well, now we've got 12 places to hunt and we can, t- we can take care of all of them
2: right and you got to get those things out of your head too maybe have a plan oh we're only going to be able to hide four or five people whatever and you show up and there's four or five other people there who thought the same thing you know just try it you you never know and just just make it work and and try to build relationships anywhere you go
1: Noah, you and i had a hunt last year that i never in a million years would have guessed those guys were going to try and set up as close as they did to us after we we talked about it in the parking lot The night before yeah the night before and all of a sudden it's sunrise and it's like what in the world is going on here and it didn't uh didn't go real well it was kind of a tough morning so
2: yeah yeah it's just one of those deals where you know it's a public refuge it's 4 a.m entry which you know most of them are and uh you know said they said they're kind of going to go to an area and we had the same area. and we happen to happen to get there first but that's one of those deals you know if someone's in the, the spot you maybe wanted to go and it's public give them 150 200 yards whatever Whatever you have to do, unless you know, unless it's Summer Lake. I was going to say, unless it's Summer Lake. <laughs> but we did that last respectful year. Respectful of each other, you know, if they're working birds off of you guys and they're the better hunters that day for whatever reason, let it happen, you know, right. and try to learn something from it.
1: Where, where do you guys think we're at right now um, as a waterfowling um, industry with regards to like the tradition, the heritage, and what's being passed on and what's being what's being showcased on social media?
3: we're in a terrible spot. We're in the worst spot that I think you could ever imagine us being in. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean that in the most respectful way to everybody in the industry, whether you're call makers, you're decoy makers, you're content creators, you're anything like that. It's nothing against you guys. What it is, is it's this like toxicity in a waterfowl community where, you know, I, I, I get not wanting to give your spots up and all that, but like, the mindset has shifted from what it used to be as going out with friends, family, having a great time in the blind, enjoying your company, to how big of a pile can we make? How many birds can we kill today? And while that is great, people tend to forget like what you're really there for. You're there for the camaraderie. You're there for that what we've referred to in our podcast as like that dugout mentality. When you're with all your buddies, all your friends, all your family... And you're able to enjoy the moment for what it is. You know, whether you shoot two ducks or you shoot 20 ducks or you shoot one limit or you shoot eight limits. If you're done by 830 or you hunt all day, it doesn't matter. Everybody wants to be in, out as quick as they can with as many birds on the ground as they can get. And to me, that's just not what's important, you know. And and I think a lot of people will agree with that, but I think there are people that will disagree with that. And you know, America's the land of the free and you're you're open to have your own opinion, but you know, I think that's kind of where we're at is, is everybody's there, see how big of a pile they can get. And they're starting to kind of lose touch with what we're really out there doing.
1: So the, the, the goal for our channel, the flyway is to showcase water fouling and water foulers and not necessarily, you know, limits and limits, and limits of birds. One thing we actually started doing, which we've enjoyed a lot. And I, I enjoyed a ton is we started putting like basically a time limit on our hunts, you know, <laughs> instead of it's, Hey, well, we got to shoot a, 28 ducks it's like hey guys we're gonna hunt till one we might shoot 14 we might shoot eight you know we might shoot we might shoot a limit but guess what at one o'clock we're gonna pack it up we're gonna enjoy the hunt we're gonna enjoy each other's company we're not gonna be walking out of here in the dark with headlamps and you know it's just i don't know it's changed our mentality a lot and i'm enjoying it big time
2: and something that important is important to that too is to setting an example, and that's kind of, in my opinion, how social media has changed things. Um, because someone just getting into the sport, and I got into the sport from an outside influence, so it's one of those that's hard for me because without that and without the people who mentored me, I it was something I would have never had the opportunity to enjoy as much as I do now. Um, but it's up to those people who are. Um, you know, social media presences or influencers or whatever you want to say to show a good example of what a successful hunt looks like. And a part of that is, you know, these people measure success with, you know, a lot, like you said, uh, how big a pile is and how quick they got it. You know, that's the only measure for success is those, is those two things. And I think if you show people a different version of success and what that looks like, you'll, you'll kind of see the culture shift there. I,
0: I, I, I think that enjoying the moment right tanner and i were just talking about this a couple hours ago you have to enjoy the moment you have to enjoy the environment that you're in and that is a successful hunt did i get out that you know hasn't hunted in 20 years did i get somebody out that has never hunted before did i get somebody out that just enjoys being here i would Love. I, I like to take friends. I have access and I have paid access to properties that that are pretty special and pretty special to me, pretty special to anybody. And I would much rather take somebody out that enjoys the moment, enjoys the experience. Um we can get piles and we can, we we will work on those piles, but I I want people that love the moment. That love, that like Tanner said, that dugout experience where there's that camaraderie, that um, passion around hanging out with a group of people, enjoying the moment, and just having a good time. If that's two birds or if that's 21 birds, if that's 20 birds, it, it doesn't matter. It is the experience of moving those decoys at 8.30 in the morning and going, hey! that nine o'clock flurry just came in and lit up on us. Like we did something right that that is the experience of the moment. And to me, that is what is really rewarding to me and something that just keeps me driving forward because I can hunt with people that just want to hurt, uh, shoot piles. And, and to me, those will happen, but I want the memories of the moment with the people, the, 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 the love for the sport that's what's important to me
1: well and and we're fortunate too as waterfowlers like it's not a 30-day elk season where you know we've got to kill a bull or we have to we're we're trying to put meat in the freezer we can it's it's a long season we can enjoy different places different people different you know different experiences from the beginning to the end and like you said you know the 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 piles those those really good days they will come (laughs) but that, that that shouldn't be your driving force as to why you hunt. Right. That's what I'm seeing on on social media, especially, is people's reason to hunt. I mean, they're literally they just just shot the last bird, and the photos are up. They've tagged every single person they can think of. We just had a we just had a ten banger, you know, whatever whatever <laughs> slang term they're using. And here's the worst part, guys. And I mean, this this, this is a whole different podcast. We're not going to go into this today. But then, what are they doing with these birds? because half, half of them I mean I don't even know what 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 they do with them and that's sad. I mean that's that's just wrong.
2: Yep. Yeah, and I think adding on to that too is just taking the competition out of it. I think it's like a little bit human nature, I think, even as, as hunters to, you know, it's whoever's the biggest, baddest hunter on the block, you know, is pe- that's how people like to measure themselves and, and trying to compete with other groups that they don't even know personally. And it's hard because we're probably all competitive guys, but I think you got to learn how to compete with yourself and, and how to outdo yourself on each hunt and, and think of it that way. Cause it's so easy to look at a different group and go, man, they killed them good today, three miles down the road, you know, and we didn't and, and you're constantly chasing that rather than, you know, chasing your personal best hunt or, or whatever, however you measure that.
0: I think your statement with that, like compete with yourself is yeah. important. Right. I think that, I think that statement's really, really good. Um, you know, did you hunt it a week ago? Did you hunt it yesterday? Wh- when did you hunt it? Right. And then measure the success or the failures from that. Yeah. And and uh. I don't think that people do that as much as 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 they should. And and it's kind of it to me. It's kind of sad. I'm a romantic hunter, right? I I appreciate the moment, right? Not not to go, yeah. You know the 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 novels that Tanner reads, but any.
3: Yeah, like, you ever want to have a weird duck hunt? Just go home with Larry. You're going to be like, why do you got candles lit? Why is there why is there a steak dinner <laughs> in here? It's five o'clock in no, the morning.
0: It, there there is a um and a factor within waterfowl hunting that I really think is important and it is building those relationships. It's, it's building that experience. It is, you know, the skybird that came down from three, 400 yards up that you got to work your decoys. It is the group of widgeon that came in and swung a hard 90 on you on the right. Like it is those moments. It's not the piles. It's, it's the building the relationships. It's the in environment that you're hunting in. It's those type of things. It's not, it's not the group of birds that you go home with. Right. I mean, what are, what's everybody doing with them? Anyhow, like you said, Eric, you, you shot a hundred birds. What did you do with them? Like, what did what did you do with them? Yeah. I know what with my birds and sometimes it's three and sometimes it's 20, 22, 21, whatever the numbers. It's like, I know what I do with them, but that's, that's what everybody doing with their game. There is though, we have to discuss this. There is one caveat or,
1: or I'll, I'll use that an asterisk, you know, because we're talking about hunting puddle ducks and divers and cacklers and hawkers. But when it comes to snow geese, I mean, I'm out there to kill, right? <laughs> Snow geese. We're, we're we are defending the tundra. So
3: that was us last year at Summer Lake. I mean, <laughs> you know, we ended up we went all the way out to the end of the dike, and and it, I'll make a long story somewhat short here. But we're out there hunting, and a wildlife officer came in, and he went off. If you're familiar with Summer Lake, there's the immediate dike on the left off of Windbreak. He came from that dike, walked halfway down it, and then cut straight through the marsh. And he walked through the marsh, and every person he came to, he checked. And my buddy and I were out there hunting, and we have, at this point, we each have like seven snow geese, maybe eight snow geese. And this guy comes out and sneaks up on us. He comes up. We're talking with him and everything. And, and we both had our, our one white front that you can shoot uh, in Lake County. And he goes, boy, I bet you guys are having a good time today. And I go, yeah you know it's been a decent morning goes well do you guys know where you guys set up at and i go i mean in the marsh you know i don't really know where exactly we're at and he goes well you see all this grass out here and i go yeah and he goes this is where all eight or nine thousand snow geese have been sitting at the last two days since they came in and i go oh well that makes sense because all morning when we were out there i mean there were snow geese flying so close to me that if i could jump at all if i wasn't fat I could have jumped up and grabbed one by its wings and caught it. I mean, all morning long, these snowgies were in there. And we were just like, it was almost self-defense shots. They were coming in so close, so hard. They wanted to land despite all the gunfire. They were trying to land in this one spot. And, you know, snowgies are a whole different thing. I, I still don't know what I would do with all of them if I lived somewhere where we had a conservation season. But those things i mean i I don't know what those guys do with all of them
1: for the most part those conservation seasons especially in the midwest um they actually have like a a hunters for the hunger and so they're able to donate their birds which i i would love to see in the northwest um but we don't have an avenue that you know that that allows that yet but no that's what that's what those guys are doing and even in canada we had a food bank up there that was taking taking birds which is nice so yeah yeah well, I, I uh, we're getting a little well just little over an hour now, but I was curious. I had a couple more questions. One was, do you guys have any any birds or any destination trips you're you're trying to check off the old list this year?
3: You know, I don't really have any necessarily birds I'd like to check off. I'm still looking to get my brant, um, and my harlequin, but I mean, really this year for me, I mean, I've got a really new dog. She'll be, uh, she'll be two in October. So this is her second year hunting and I'm just looking to get her out and get some birds. I mean, I I'll go wherever the birds are at. If, if I can get somewhere where, you know, I can have an opportunity to shoot a bramp, I'll do it in a heartbeat. But, uh, for me, I'm just in it to, to have fun and, and get a little better at photography and start doing a little more videoing and, um, and all that. So I don't really have, I mean, we're going to go over to, uh, the northeast part of Oregon, kind of up towards Umatilla for a goose hunt this year. But other than that, I don't have anywhere else I'm going really. I we we have that goose
0: hunt that Tanner and I are going to go on, and then uh, I think that opening weekend on the eastern side, I've got a little river uh, tributary that uh, I go over and hunt chucker on that. Yeah. I think I'm going to throw out a half a dozen decoys this year and sit on the bank of that low river early in the morning, probably hungover, and <laughs> both, both, I I see them every time, man. Every time for the last 15 years, uh, you know I typically about six to eight uh, mallards uh, fly up the river, and I'm I'm going to bust one of them. That that's my goal.
3: You know, Eric, I do have uh, I do have a bird I'm looking for, and if you can, I I'd be surprised if you couldn't guess what it is. Uh, I'm looking for um, not necessarily a bird in particular, but I'm looking for something in particular. Do you have any idea what that is?
1: Oh gosh, I have no idea. Are you looking for like a stud shoveler Drake? That was
3: my idea. <laughs> uh, well, I didn't get one. I didn't get one of those last year, but no, I I'm looking for my first Summer Lake band. I've gone to Summer Lake the last eight years, and I've shot big ducks. I've shot mallards. I've shot gadwall. Um, I've shot at mallards that I'm almost 100% sure were banded. I could see it. Still wasn't banded. Uh, I've gone out in the the water lock areas where there's tons of water and bull grass, and I've found gadwall from either the youth hunt or birds that got lost. I found 12 gadwall just that way. None of them banded. And I am convinced that I am not allowed to shoot a band in Summer Lake. Like I I can't stress it enough. The first year we went, we took somebody from California and we had a gadwall come by and I was like, I'm good. Like we already had like 26 snows, we had 30 ducks. I'm like, I don't want any more, whatever. He shoots it and it's banded. And that was the point where I was like, okay. I'm going to shoot a band next year. Go out all gadwalls and mallards, no band. Same thing the next 7 years. So this year I am looking to finally put a band on my lanyard from Eastern Oregon. I have five or six bands from the valley. Never shot one from Summer Lake though.
1: Yeah, I, I don't even, I don't I'm not even sure what to say,
3: to be honest I was, I'm speechless. That's I'm unlucky.
1: Speechless, yeah. Yeah.
3: I I've shot over 40 ducks at Summer Lake. Not one of them. My
1: my only suggestion for you is this if that's really, if that's a goal, which I think it's it's a great goal, I would go out and just try to target them and try to to land them and let them sit their legs out. And, you know,
3: know, I think it was the last year that Marty was there. I asked Marty because it was about the third or fourth year I'd gone and I still had to shot one. And I go, Marty, I go, I need some help, man. He goes, what's up? And I go, I need a band. And he goes, well, you're at the right place. And I go, I don't think I am. I go, I've come here for the last three or four years and I haven't shot one. And he's like, well, where are you going? And I go, well, I go, I think I'm going where you guys are setting your traps at. And he goes, I don't think you are, you know? And so I go, well, I go, I'm going to go all the way out and give it a shot. And he goes, that's the best place to do it. Went all the way out, shot my big ducks, still didn't get one. And I drowned myself in sorrows and Jack Daniels that night because I cried myself to sleep. I cried the whole way home. I have nightmares about it still. And I just can't, I don't think I'm allowed to do it. I can tell you're you're visibly upset. I am. I mean I'm like you know, it bothers me.
2: I kinda wish, many... I kinda wish I could relate, you know. <laughs> Just feel your Do you pain have one from it...
3: over there? Yeah, I got some from summer lake.
1: Have you have you ever like have you ever crippled any ducks out there and lost them?
3: You know, I know where you're going with this. <laughs> <and> <laughs> there's
1: there's your banded birds.
3: <laughs> I know where you're going with this and I have about a three hour drive to work tomorrow and I'm gonna <laughs> revert from answering this question because I know I'm going to go to bed tonight and my skin is going to crawl all night long and I'm not going to get any sleep. Um, but yeah, I have crippled a couple mallards out there um, and Gadwall which for the first few years I went, they were very concerned with banding. Um, but yeah, I don't know, man. I, I, I love going to summer. Like regardless, you know, we go over for, for hanging out with our friends and everything. And the hunting's a bonus, you know, cowboy dinner trees, one of the treats we get. And if I could just get a band, it would just be the icing on the cake um i said last year if i don't get a band we're gonna stop the podcast and we're still here so maybe that's why
1: you have to give the people what they want i know i, I know i think i know i think i know noah's answer to this but i'm curious because we we actually talk about this quite often like towards the end of our season are like you know cody and i know we'll be yeah. driving back And get right? what next year what's our what, what's everyone's goals what do you want to do i think i know what noah's gonna say
2: i think it's brant which is probably what you're thinking yep. um I think for me, like we've talked about so many times in the last hours, the experience of it, I think is something that would be completely foreign to me. Uh, I would just, I would just like to do, I mean, as far as something in the continental U S that would for sure be it. Um, also I, I just like to hunt ducks in the trees. Um, you know, where, where you're supposed to do it. Um, And kind of like Larry was, was talking about some of those, one of my most memorable duck hunts ever actually was out of a tributary out of the Eagle caps um, that we found on one of our quail farms that we hunt. And uh, it was in the trees, little, Tributary out of the out of the caps, and there was we counted there was thirty two mallards in there the day before, and we shot twenty one of them, and it was just that was one of my most memorable hunts ever. So I think I think you'll have a fun fun opener. But yeah, mine mine would be brand. I think just I think it just sounds cool. Not even. I wouldn't say I'm like a bird collector by any means, you know, but just as far as experiences go, that's something that'd be pretty foreign to me that I would just like to do. And there's also a ton of March brands. I think one of the little, little one, of, one of the
1: coolest things about hunting brand, in my opinion, is like the, <laughs> the amount of tradition and history that is surrounded yeah. by it. It's like one of those things like as a waterfowler, um, you have to do it. You just have to. Yeah. You have to experience it, you have to do it, and you have to know you're you're walking in the footsteps of, you know, people that have been doing it for a long, long time.
2: Yeah, I think that has a lot of a lot of play in it for me that and hunting ducks in the trees, you know. I think for any die-hard waterfowl guy that's one of those things where it's just you I think you got to get out and do that and I clearly have never done it. So I'd I'd like to experience that at some point.
3: Are you talking like cypress trees or like willow trees?
2: Oh. Timber, timber timber. <laughs> so once
1: once you shoot mallards in the timber, it's it changes your life. It yeah. it does.
0: I I do have a, a must be, must be of, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Not a waterfowl question for uh the three of you. What are you, what are your guys' thoughts on the seven millimeter PRC?
1: Oh. Yeah. So, uh-huh. We're going deep. is um, that for a different podcast? I'm all in. I want to hear Noah's answer.
2: I think in theory it sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Um that every prc i've shot has i don't own any prcs personally um, but every build of a buddies that i've shot has done exactly what they thought it would and what i thought it would uh they're they're generally i i was actually looking at them like last week so it's kind of funny right. funny you say that but i they look like an amazing round honestly yeah
1: i love the 7mm i've got one it's yep. fantastic rifle i love my 28 nozzler so i trust me i love that that caliber basically I, I think a 7mm prc sounds phenomenal so
0: i mean so you you it nozzler yeah i do yeah you know i i was looking at the uh you know the the everything from the bc to the power ch- charge all that i i do a lot of my own uh reloading and hmm. you know I, I i'm sitting there going dead gum, like, oh, a lot less powder, I got some pretty good b c oh, I think I might have to spend some money next year, right, like that that's where I'm sitting
2: at the the 28's amazing, the only downside I've found of the 28's barrel life, um but past that so, you know i I've also never shot out a barrel, so I, it's just one of those things yeah. I think people worry about, but it's like like you- unless you're one of those guys, you know. Um, it's probably a non issue. The biggest downside to have
1: 20 nozzler right now is the components, like trying to find everything I need to reload is a nightmare.
0: So, yeah, the um, you know, I I think the 28 nozzler has a little bit of uh giddy up to it, obviously. The 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 you know, there's some um (laughs) muzzle velocity there, And, and for me, I'm I'm a big boy, you know, I I Eric, I think you're. Guy, I think we're both big, big guys. Um, I'm not too concerned about the recoil. He's hitting on him. Uh, what's that? No, The
1: recoil is not bad at all. I, I've, I've, I've had a, I've had mine uh, with a brake on it, and it was really easy to shoot. I just put a suppressor on it, and it's really fun to shoot. So yeah, no, the, the, re- the recoil is not bad at all.
2: So I can you know, I can shoot them fine, and I'm
0: uh seven millimeter PRC. I, th- I I think uh, I think we might start seeing them in the stores this fall. Um, I think that might be on my radar pretty soon.
1: I'm loving the fact that we started talking about rif- rifles and Tanner looks like he's literally lost in space. Yeah, I'm,
3: I'll tell you what, man. I love rifles and guns and all that, but like, <laughs> I seriously have I have duck feathers in my blood. Like, I mean, like you could talk to me about like anything in the world, and I'm like. Yeah, whatever, man. And then I hear somebody say something about a duck, and I'm like, "So, where did you see it at? And (laughs) like, what time? Where Where can (laughs) I find it at? Do you know what it looked like? Did it have a metal thing on its on its foot, like a like a tracking thing on its foot? You know, Tanner's band hungry. I'm not band hungry. I just I'm frustrated about it. You got me on the topic of it. No, I can't let it go. I've actually like one of my goals.
2: I've only ever shot one valley band, uh, one valley duck band, and so you know, and I've hunted the valley more than anything else. That's kind of kind of one of my goals. I'll tell you to what, shoot, man, more, when it rains, more pours. valley bands. I just when it rains, it pours. That's one of my things. I know we talked about competition, but man, I get mad when homeboy from across the road <laughs> shoots a cackler band. I'll tell you what. You got on be- it all, all week. I get upset and I get real competitive. You should be real friends quick. with my buddy.
3: <laughs> this guy shoots widgeon bands. He shoots cackler band. I mean, he just will be in the middle of hunting and I'll get a Snapchat from this guy and I'm like. Yeah, that's homeboy from across the street. I think. I'm not even gonna now. open it. Not even gonna open it. And I wait till I get home. And I'm like, you, I just delete, block, see you later, man.
1: <laughs> well, guys, uh, this has been uh, this has been a lot of fun, and I'm sure we could talk for hours. But one thing I'd like to do is hopefully try to get together and, and put a put a hunt together this season. It'd be a lot of fun yeah. to share a blind and continue this conversation. So. Absolutely. Well, thank you, everyone, for uh, for turn- tuning in um, to the Born and Raised audio experience. Brought to you by On X. And if you don't have On I think I said this last podcast. You're just doing yourself a huge disfavor. You Need to have On X for just about everything you do. So, yeah, guys, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. It was a great time catching up, and we'll uh, we'll be talking here real soon.
3: Yeah, we'll catch you guys uh, catch you guys sometime out in the marsh.